So why would he do it? Why would Jesus go anywhere near Jerusalem that Palm Sunday so long ago? Why ride in triumphantly when he clearly knew that the horrors of the cross awaited him on Friday? On the day of his messianic procession and celebration, Jesus knew he would soon be betrayed, arrested, humiliated, condemned, and tortured. He knew he would die in agony. And the weight of it all burdened him terribly, as we heard read just a few moments ago. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Think of that. Now is my soul troubled. And yet Jesus went to Jerusalem anyway. Jesus went because it was his very purpose in being born into this world. He went because it was God's will. He went because of love. Love for God, his Father. Love for for fallen creation that cried out for renewal and restoration. Love for humanity. Love for you and me. Jesus went because it was necessary for him to go. It was critically important that Jesus ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to the shouts of Hosanna in fulfillment of so much Scripture. It was important to God. It was important to millions and billions of present and future souls hopelessly separated from God's love by the guilt of their own sin. It was important for much the same reason it is important for us to be faithful in praying for and sharing Christ with our one, that one person that we have committed to the Lord that we will share Jesus with because of the frightful fate of those living without Jesus in their life. The importance of what Jesus came to do And the importance of what we are called to do as his followers is vividly illustrated in a parable that Jesus told a group of mocking Pharisees in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. The parable goes like this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off 
and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This parable illustrates both the importance of what Jesus rode into Jerusalem to accomplish on Palm Sunday and the importance of what we are called to share with our one because faithfulness to your one is eternally important. This parable illustrates God's great reversal of fortune and the idea of a great reversal of fortunes permeates Luke's gospel through and through. And it is vividly illustrated here as Jesus is telling this parable about an unrighteous wealthy man to a group of unrighteous wealthy Pharisees who had been mocking his teaching about how to handle money for the purposes of the kingdom. And verses 14 and 15 report that the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And so Jesus answers their scorn with this parable I just read about an incredibly wealthy man who neglected the poor literally lying at his doorstep. Verse 19 describes the lavish wealth of this man who wore the finest and most expensive imported fabrics and fashions. He literally dressed himself like a king. And, and today we would say he was wearing the, the most expensive designer labels. And he and his household were feasting extravagantly every single day at a time of, of deep food insecurity where so many struggle to put, put bread on the table. They are feasting every day. And in contrast, verses 20 and 21 introduce this profoundly poor man who is laid at his gate to beg for scraps. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Yuck. Interestingly, this is the only character ever named in a parable. 
Lazarus. No, not the actual Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead. This character, Lazarus, embodies abject poverty, profound misery, and degradation. And at at the beginning of the parable, his name appears to be this terrible, terrible irony because it literally means he whom God has helped. And what could seem to be more obviously opposite from that than the condition of this beggar? His life is so awful that the neighborhood dogs, right? Let's be clear, we're not talking about our beloved fur babies that we, we pamper so much in our culture today, right? We are talking about wild, unclean, possibly even dangerous scavengers lick his sores. And as the parable unfolds, it would seem that the rich man knew of Lazarus' misery. I mean, I'm sure it was impossible for him to miss this guy lying at the gate of his property. But he knows him by name, so he knows the situation. And I think we can clearly tell he, he didn't do anything about the situation. Apparently he does nothing to help him. And then God reverses their fortunes in death. And we see then that for all eternity, Lazarus truly is he whom God has helped. Verses 22 and 23 report that Lazarus was taken by angels into fellowship with God's people while the rich man wound up in Hades, the place of the unrighteous dead, also frequently called Sheol, or as we call it, hell. The fate of this lover of money whose cruel heart God knew points us back to those Pharisees who were mocking Jesus in verses 14 and 15, and his fate is described as being in torment forever. And from hell, the rich man is able to see heaven, and one of his torments clearly is to be deeply aware of his own lostness, hopelessness, and separation from God. And he begs for for just a bit of cool water from Lazarus, just as Lazarus once begged for a scrap of food from that overflowing table. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. He still wants Lazarus to serve him, even in eternity. And Jesus then uses Abraham to explain the great reversal To explain God's ultimate and eternal vindication of the righteous sufferer. See, Scripture never promises that the righteous will not suffer in this life. Scripture promises ultimate and eternal vindication. And this is what's being illustrated here. God's ultimate vindication of the righteous sufferer and His eternal judgment on the unrighteous. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Justice has been done as the last has become first, and the first last. And in verse 26, Abraham confirms this separation is forever, that it was impossible for anyone to cross the divide between heaven and hell. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. 
in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And so, so recognizing that his own situation was hopeless, the rich man now begins to beg for Lazarus to go and warn his family to repent of their sinful ways. The parable reports the rich man had five brothers who were apparently just likewise headed for eternal anguish in hell. Presumably just as hard-hearted to the needy around them, just as far off God's agenda for the world, just as absorbed in their own consumption and their own delights. And Abraham responds in verse 29 by saying, look, they have access to the Bible. Moses and the prophets, that's all they need. Well, Lazarus claims, well, hey, having someone, someone visit them from the dead, surely that would be more compelling than God's word. But Jesus concludes the parable with tremendous foreshadowing, saying that their hard hearts towards God's word will not be, those hearts will not be any more impressed by someone rising from the dead. Recognize this parable as being told by someone who will soon rise from the dead. And he knows that this same audience will reject him then too. While we learn many things from this parable, I want to particularly focus on one key lesson today and what that means for our one. The lesson is this. Repentance is required and the alternative is awful. Repentance is required and the alternative is awful. Now, hell isn't a popular subject to talk about these days. I understand that. I'm not going to apologize, but I understand it. Nonetheless, as the parable makes clear, hell is real, it's terrible, and it's forever. Now, we almost certainly don't like to think about someone that we care about suffering in hell, but here's the deal. Jesus talked about hell a lot. Specifically, so that we would be forced to think about hell. And so if you value at all what Jesus teaches on other topics, you cannot ignore what he so emphatically and, and, and often taught about hell. And while, yes, this is a parable, we need to understand that the, his references to torment or anguish four times in this parable and to fire, all of this is consistent with his teaching from throughout the ministry of Jesus. As we see in this parable, hell is torment, misery, and agony. It is not a cartoonish place of little cartoonish devils with pitchforks. It's also a place of deep awareness of one's separation from God. Absolute separation from God forever. The absence of His presence and blessings, as is reflected in verse 23. You see, whatever anyone in the world may believe about God during life, it is clear everyone will believe and understand many to their regret after they die. And at that point, hell is forever. There is no escape once a person dies because of that great and permanent chasm that's described in verse 26. 
Only repentance in Christ lets anyone avoid the torments of hell. Verse 30 makes clear, repentance is required, right? This is the rich man's uh, desire for his living brothers. This is what he recognized he lacked in his own life. Repentance is necessary to escape sharing his eternal fate. And the underlying Greek word for repentance is a word called metanoia. And metanoia describes a complete change of one's mind, a radical moral turn of the whole person from sin and to God. A radical moral turn of the whole person from sin and to God. Only such a complete and decisive turn from sin and towards God escapes the torments of hell. But here's the thing. Such a radical turn isn't possible in our own corrupted, selfish, rebellious, sin-loving nature. We can try real hard for a while. We can run ourselves ragged trying real hard. But we will not succeed. It's only through the regenerating work of God's Holy Spirit that we are able to repent, to experience metanoia, in the complete, holistic way required. Our salvation from the miseries of hell isn't based on being a good person, doing good things, and operating in our own power, but only by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because it is there that His perfect righteousness is credited to our account. 1 Peter 2.24 explains, He Himself bore our sins in his body, on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And this is why Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, despite knowing that the cross lay before him. He went because he knew the cross lay before him, and while it weighed terribly upon his soul, he knew what he went to do to bear our sins in his body, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, that we might repent, that there might be metanoia in us. Jesus came into Jerusalem to set his followers free from the penalty of their guilt and sin through his own sacrificial death and resurrection. Jesus came to take the guilt of our sin and God's wrath for our rebellion upon himself so that we would be forgiven our sins when we believe in him and repent. 2 Corinthians 5.22 proclaims, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, we have the power to repent, and in Christ, our sins are always completely forgiven. 1 John 1.9 assures us if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so Palm Sunday led to Good Friday, led to Easter Sunday, because repentance is required and the alternative is awful. And this is why you must remain faithful to share Jesus with your one. 
I remain faithful to share Jesus with your one. Because apart from Jesus, the experience of the rich man is what awaits our one. And granted, this is a parable. So in eternity, I don't think it's very likely that our one is going to be able to, to banter back and forth with Abraham. But the rest of it is very real. The torment, agony, fire, and profound awareness of the utter absence of God's presence and love is what lies before our one. And our minds don't want to think about hell. We don't like to think about hell, but we must because we care for our one, and we would not wish this horror on our worst enemy. This is so important for our one. And as hard as it is to hear and think about, the torment of a Christless eternity is the default destination for every person apart from Jesus. See, we, we share and we enjoy the wondrous love of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. We love this, we cherish this, we celebrate it. It is a glorious truth, but we must also remember the dreadful eternal importance to our one of John 3.18. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Apart from faith in Jesus, hell is the final destination for our one and every other person who does not know Christ. This is why sharing Jesus is so critical. This is why planting churches that plant churches is so critical. This is why missions is so critical. This is why staying faithful to our one is so critical. And though our public emphasis on who's your one will now diminish for a while, the work of who's your one must continue for each of us. We must never stop having someone that we are praying to share Jesus with. We must never stop having someone whose soul we are praying for God to save through faith in Jesus. So please, please, please remember the commitment you made to God for your one. And keep praying for their salvation. Continue sharing conversations with your one toward spiritual subjects. Continue sharing your hope in Jesus with your one. Because faithfulness to your one is eternally important to them. Now, I'm going to pray, but I also want to give you an opportunity to respond after I do so. So, sorry for the worship team, you're going to scramble again. I'm going to pray, but if you've realized through all that has been sung, through Betty's testimony, through the Word of God proclaimed, if you realize that you need Jesus yourself, Regardless of what your church background is, you may have been going to church for years without putting your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as Betty told us she had done. I want to give you the opportunity to respond if you're at home to just get on your knees and to pray for God's uh, forgiveness in faith, through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're here in person, I want to give you the opportunity to come and, and pray and pray with Pastor Neil, pray with myself, or pray, just come to the, to the steps and to kneel and pray. Or also to pray as well if there's something you want to repent of. So I'm going to, I'm going to lead us in a brief time of prayer, but then I want to give you the chance to respond wherever you are.
and to know that we would love to pray with you. Almighty Father, we don't like to talk about hell. We don't like to think about hell. We don't like to imagine suffering that goes on without end. And for many, we struggle with the concept. And there's lots and lots of great theological debates and questions that can be had, but what cannot be questioned is the fact that Jesus taught, talked and taught about it a lot. We must take seriously the consequences of a life apart from faith in Christ. And so, Lord God, we pray for our one, and we pray for anybody who is worshiping with us, whether in person or online, who has not yet embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Lord God, we pray that you would stir in their hearts now, that they would yield their life to Christ and accept Him. And Lord God, if there are any here among us who have not been following Jesus as we ought, Lord God, we enjoy the glorious grace of knowing that if we confess our sins to you, if we repent, and you will forgive us. And so, Lord God, I pray that in the moments to come, you will reveal to our hearts the sins that lie within us, that we may repent and confess them to you, Lord, and enjoy the forgiveness in Christ. Lord God, we give thanks for the grace that you have extended to us, and we pray that you will help us to be messengers of that grace to our one and to all around us who are hurting and lost and broken. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Used and thrown off our worship team. I do want to give a few minutes to respond, whether that's quietly in your seat, whether that's coming up to pray up front or to pray with Pastor Neil or myself, or whether that's at home, getting on your knees and praying. Whatever God lays on your heart these next few minutes, just lift it up to Him.